Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Well, take your Bibles. We're going to uh, continue in our study of the Gospel of Certainty. Of course, that's the uh, Gospel according to Luke, the beloved physician. And we've been now in our study of this uh, Gospel account for a number of weeks. And we are, in an early way, going to approach the title, The Birth of Christ, uh, as we look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. And you should know, in my estimation, as well as others, this is maybe the very best-known section of the, of the whole Bible. I mean, sometimes we think of John 3.16, and sometimes we think of the 23rd Psalm, and certainly they are well-known, and the 23rd Psalm is well-known. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We know that. But with this containing the Christmas story and how it's read and recited around the world, whether folks uh, wittingly or unwittingly know that it comes from Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. And that's why I say that it just may be, in substance, the best-known portion uh, of our Bible. So let's read that and look at Luke, chapter 2. And in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Well, this event, this event that uh, tells us of the entrance of God into the world, uh, is uh, again one of uh, those passages that teach us of one of the greatest events that ever took place in, yes, real human history. Jesus was the greatest one ever to be born. And Dr. Luke, the physician, is going to make certain notations here in his gospel account that would catch the eye and the thought of a physician in that day. Well, we as Americans certainly love to say, don't we, no taxation without representation. We think of the Boston Tea Party, right? Throw the British out. Throw the tea overboard. King George, you think in the Stamp Act you're going to charge us? We're British citizens, as the thought was expressed in the colonial days of our country. You're not going to tax us. We didn't have a part in that. We are British citizens, and so no taxation without representation. And all of you went to elementary school and learned that. So, however, you should know in the ancient world it was a little bit different. It was no taxation without registration. 
And that's what's going to go on <clears throat> in our text this morning. No taxation without registration. So very often, all the people of the empire would be required to register as a part of a census. It was Rome's way of squeezing tax money, a poll tax, if you will, out of uh, all the people, Romans, born Romans, made Romans, and foreigners of the entire Mediterranean world, which uh, the Roman Empire was at this time. Wow, squeezed the money out of the people. You should know there were really two reasons that uh, the government of Rome did that in that an ancient day. Uh, it was uh, for squeezing money, for taxes, for gold, if you will. And the second was, was to take a number and uh, that they might uh, draft men into the military ser service of the country. <clears throat> Let me get ahead of myself a little bit here. The Jews were exempt from Roman military service. And so at least uh, as we focus into Bethlehem and what we'll see this morning, it was not for that. It was not a, a draft. Some of you think of the Vietnam War days and the draft and the burning of the draft cards. It was not for draft purposes for military uh, in Israel. It was to squeeze people out of the few coins in their pocket. Dr. Reichen, the uh, current pastor, 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, writes, Death and taxes. Nothing demonstrates, he writes, the power of government more clearly than their ability to take people's money and to send them off to war. And Rome did this almost better than most. Even today, if you think about it, even in our own culture, when April 15th comes around, it's not uncommon for us to say, well, we rendered under Caesar, right? It even comes 20 centuries later to us of this uncanny ability of Rome to be able to squeeze tax money out of their people. Somebody said in our colonial day, uh, it's dangerous whenever the Congress is in session. Run, run. Because the power of the purse and the power to tax, run. They're going to fleece you down. Oh, my. Well, the encouraging thing here is in all of this, the amazing thing for mystery is the footprint of the divine. Did you know that it is? God was at work. God was at work. I remind you, it was he, and it is he who is king and not Caesar. And he would use this earthly king like a pawn to fulfill his purpose in providing us with a Savior. God had prepared the earth for about 4,000 years for the coming of the birth of his son. And Dr. Luke, writing in this Gospel of Certainty, is now going to place the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ right into time-space history as he dates like none of the other gospel writers do and places the birth of Christ. Well, there are three settings in these seven short verses uh, involving the birth of our Savior, and the lesson here is it ought to encourage us that God rules over all, not only the great things, but the little things and even the smallest things that even move, and not even the hairs of your head 
go unnumbered. He knows them. Or the smallest of birds that may fall out of the tree. He even is aware of that and knows that altogether. Our God rules. Our God reigns. And Luke, in his gospel of certainty, is going to give us three settings of this birth of our Savior, teaching us just that. Now, it's like this. It's like uh, <clears throat> you take a, uh, a wide-angle lens. Some of you like your cameras. This is like a wide-angle. The first setting is going to be Rome. It's, a wide, it's over the whole empire, the whole civilized world, if you will, at that point. And then he's going to go to a little narrower lens. He's going to look at the city, or really it was a village there in Bethlehem. Galen and Vicky can close their eyes and, and see it because they were just there and visiting the Church of the Nativity. And then finally, the third setting is going to be into a stable. So at wide angle, the empire narrows down to the second setting. We're going to talk about O Bethlehem. We sing that at Christmas, right? And then finally, even more narrow, pointed right into a barn, if you will. In Pennsylvania, that's what we would think of as a barn, is where the birth of Christ took place. Well, this God's plan is all-encompassing. And I remind you, you need to be reminded about this all the time. I do, that there are no accidents in history. No accidents. God has a plan that's all-encompassing, includes all things, and there are no accidents. There's no plan B. Penn State won yesterday. Did you see that? Dan, you don't care, I know. But Penn State won, right? That was plan A. There were no plan Bs, although they might have called an audible at the line. With God, it's always plan A. Whatever God does, He does. And He unfolds His eternal counsel and decree in His purposes. He's all-knowing, and He's always been all-knowing. He never had to learn anything. And he brings about his purpose. It's called providence. That means God uses secondary means. Like what? We're going to see it. We just read it. An edict from Caesar. God is speaking in and through that and using a king who freely says, I want more gold. And he wants more gold. But God, and through that, the turning the screws of his heart and his mind to issue that decree God is going to bring about his purpose. There are no accidents, and I need to know that. Oftentimes, things happen, and we, we get blunted and hurt by the things that happen to us. And we're prone to say, God has forgotten me. God doesn't know about that, or an accident that takes place. I know, Rob, you told me you were in New Kingston there, and someone was still going the old way on the new way, and... Uh, and ran into you. You met by accident, you know. Stuff happens in the fallen world. And we need to know over and over and over again. We need to be assured. We need to be encouraged. We need to be reminded that there's only plan A. And God's plan is all-encompassing. Well, let's look at the wide angle, this first setting, the birth of Christ. And it's Rome. And here, the greatest ruler in the world orders a census. And little does he realize that he's a mere puppet in the hands of God. That's all he is. You know, Job is right when he says we're nothing more than dust and ashes. Do you think you're more than that? I was telling somebody I saw one time they figured out what our bodies are worth. Do you ever see that? 
Our bodies are worth the current uh, value, the mineral content at, what, a buck and a half? Yeah, and I told the guy at the Y, I said, I've really gone, my stock's gone up. He says, really? And I said, yeah. He said, uh, you know, I got that titanium implant. That titanium's expensive. <laughs> I've gone up. I asked my therapist, you know, will uh, in, the, in the new body, in the resurrection, will it be titanium or will it be, he said, it won't be titanium. I said, <laughs> he was Todd Dame, he's a good man, he's, he loves the Lord. That's right. That's exactly right. He was a mere puppet in God's hand. God rules over, not overall, not Augustus. Though he, he, uh, though he was at the height of his powers, this Augustus, and we'll talk more about him so you can see the glory of his kingdom, his empire, and yet God used this mere man who was dust and ashes and not much more. Well, A, Luke, the careful historian that he is, he dates the birth of Jesus. And a quick reminder, Matthew doesn't do this. Mark doesn't do it. Matthew is simply concerned with presenting the king that was promised. It was fulfilled. It was fulfilled. It was fulfilled. The king has come, Jesus. Mark's gospel, John Mark, that's the gospel according to Peter, really, uh, there's not even uh, any genealogy. He's the servant of the Lord. Who cares where a servant came from? Doesn't date it at all. And certainly John, John, the other gospel, John presents what? Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. I got news for you. God had no beginning. So uh, there's no dating there at all in the prologue of John's gospel. Only Luke, the careful historian, the one who writes this gospel of certainty, he pinpoints it. And we're going to do a little bit of history today, and I was always taught, don't just preach history, preach the God of history and what God is doing in history and Christ in history. But you have to come to understand, first of all, the context here as, uh, as Luke gives it to us in his word. Well, uh, Caesar Augustus issues a decree. It's the first one taken while Quirinius was governor. Now, Quirinius governed in two different terms according to, our, uh, according to history. There are critics that, that say, well, that can't be. Quirinius only uh, served as governor of Syria in, in A.D. 6 through 9. But lo and behold, we have discovered that he also served in the B.C. years of, 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 B, of 6 to 4 B.C., and it was during that time. And so Luke, the careful historian who knew, who knew far more about uh, the exacting of history of his day than critics 20 centuries later who don't believe in the supernatural Word of God or the greatness of God anyway. And so Luke is telling us really that Jesus was really born in time. He really was. He wasn't the figment of someone's imagination. He wasn't sort of a demagogue of the Greco-Roman world. He was really born, flesh and blood, eyes and fingers and toes and fingerprints and hair. Was it bushy? Was it long? Was it dark? Eye color, skin color, all the rest. He was a real human being. The doctor is telling us here, just like any other baby. Well, B, this one named Caesar Augustus, some of you know and love your history better than others, I know that, 
was really Octavian. And Octavian reigned, and I have on your sheet there, 31 B.C. to 14 A.D. Octavian. He was the first Caesar to receive the title emperor by the Roman Senate. And it should be 27. I made a mistake. It should be 27 B.C. Now, they were a republic for many, many years. And they lost the republic. And don't think that the United States will forever and ever, ever be a republic. It can easily be lost. It's got to be won, really, by each generation of citizens that value uh, input and not just give that off to someone, okay, you govern and take care of that, because the story of history is the experiment that you and I are a part of here is extremely rare and easily lost. And the Romans lost their republic. And the Roman Senate said, uh, Augustus, um, you're our emperor, you reign. And so he did just that. He replaced the republic with an imperial form of government. You should know that uh, Octavian was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Remember him? E2 Brutus, right? He was killed by the Roman Senate, that, that general that uh, conquered uh, 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 France and Germany and, and what we call today that, uh, the Gallic Wars. He, uh, he was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, the, the son born to his sister. And so he was the appointed heir of Julius Caesar when he was brutally killed by the Roman Senate in 44 B.C. Uh, at that time, uh, and soon after, uh, there was a uh, triumphant uh, that uh, led Rome along with uh, uh, this one Octavian. But finally, <clears throat> Antonio and Cleopatra uh, were defeated by him. Antonio was one of the three in the triumphant uh, who challenged uh, Octavian to the throne he was a general and was finally defeated. He and uh, Cleopatra took up uh, and uh, actually had a child, and uh, he defeated them at the Battle of Actium. It was a naval battle uh, as he challenged Octavian for the, uh, the throne. Well, he was heir. And so after that, uh, you should know Cleopatra really lived. She was the ruler of Egypt, it was part of the Roman Empire. And uh, after that defeat, that's when Cleopatra took her life with Ant Ant Antony as, as well at that same time after, he, uh, after they were defeated uh, by Octavian. Well, Octavian was uh, an outstanding administrator, so much so that we see a bit of it here with the taxation. Uh, it was a time of peace after civil war in the empire for years and years and years. One upmanship, a general trying to, to be, uh, force himself in the leadership and strife, and it was sectarian and divided. And, and finally, uh, in his uh, great administrative abilities, was able to secure the whole empire. And it, you can go all the way around the Mediterranean, and, and Rome ruled it at this point. And Octavian... Uh, developed a whole sense of governance uh, on the Mediterranean basin for the government. He was a great administrator. He was a great builder. 
He was a unifier of the empire after a long period of civil strife. Uh, historians, well, it was known as Pax Romania, the peace of Rome. You see, God's hand was behind all of this. For there would be born a Savior, and then in a few years he would die, and then the gospel would need to be heralded throughout the whole world, even as our verse, Acts 1.8, teaches us. And it was the road system that he developed around the whole known world. Stones, I mean, they were incredible. Even that there are many parts of that Roman road system that is still in existence today. The Via Maris, I've walked on that along the Mediterranean. The Roman road system, much of it developed by uh, this Caesar Augustus Octavian. And it was needful for the sharing and the spreading of the gospel. Paul and Luke and others, as they took the gospel from Jerusalem all throughout the known world of that day, he was that kind of, uh, of, uh, of, of administrator and reader. On his deathbed, he said something like this, I, when I came to the throne, I found Rome bricks, and I made it marble. And he certainly, certainly did. Although Caesar would never know it, though, he unleashed in his, his edict for a census, he unleashed a chain of events that would turn the whole world upside down. Wow. Well, see, what at first appeared to be a great show of his power actually proved to be the supremacy of God's sovereignty. There are no accidents, I've said it now how many times, or chance happenings in history. This is not only true for the great events of history, but also for the ordinary events of your daily life and mine. There are no accidents. There are no chance meetings it is all prescribed by God. Caesar wanted gold, but God was in the midst of providing a Savior, a Savior for men and women, boys and girls, to meet the greatest need of your life and heart and mine. Wow, that's what he was up to. Not gold, but the Son of God, which is far more valuable than gold. One man writes, God was taking Caesar's pawns like Quirinius. He was taking him and moving them to checkmate so that the real Savior, that is the Lord Jesus, who would stand alone as King of Kings, would arrive. So one little word from mighty Caesar, one little word, it's amazing how little actions uh, have great significance. One little word there in the chambers of his palace in Rome, and people thousands of miles away began to move. Now, that's power, isn't it? I don't have, didn't have that kind of power in my home growing up. I'm the father here. Cut the grass. Well, it didn't always get cut, you know, when I thought or wanted it to be cut, right? I couldn't even rule my little kingdom, right? <laughs> Oh, man, relax, you know. No, they didn't say that. I wouldn't have tolerated that. <laughs> but here's Caesar, right? And all of a sudden, there's migrating people all over the empire going to their ancestral cities. 
what? To be squeezed and shaken down, to lose some of their gold coins and whatnot because of his little word. Well, God was up to something. God had uh, Augustus speak so that Jesus would be born in the promised place. He was going to unleash him. How ironic. God uses Caesar. God uses Caesar to get the couple to Bethlehem. That's amazing to me. He unleashes, in doing so, a chain of events that is really, truly remarkable. Remarkable. Well, that's the first, that's the wide angle. That's Rome. The greatest ruler in the, in the world of that day orders a census. And, and I might say one other thing. He's, some claim that Caesar Augustus was the greatest uh, who ever ruled Rome, and that, that may be. Well, let's narrow the lens down to the second setting as we're talking about this nativity, the birth of Jesus. And we're talking about Bethlehem. Interesting that the word Bethlehem in the Hethrew comes from two words. Bethlehem, lehem means bread, house of bread. And that Jesus would one day later say, I am the bread of life, born in the house of bread, or Bethlehem. And the young couple would make the journey to David's town. There in verses 4 and 5. Let's reread 4 and 5. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary. With Mary. Mary went with him, who was pledged to be married to him, or betrothed is the Greek word, and was expecting a child. Well, the young couple now, because of what happens in Rome, make the long trek, probably 100 miles. She's very pregnant. Mary is with Joseph. Some wonder why. Why is Mary with him? Why didn't Joseph just make the trek on his own and pay what he needed to? And we're not told in Scripture, but easily a couple of things come to mind. First of all, he knew that... They both knew that she was soon going to give birth, and uh, they all knew, both Joseph and Mary knew, that this was the promised seed of the woman, the Messiah, the Christ, and, and so it's reasonable to say that Joseph wanted to be there. I was there three times and witnessed uh, three ch- children being born, our kids, and I wouldn't have missed that for anything. Uh, parts of it I would have missed, but to the overall, I was glad I was there and, and saw that and, and, and all that. And so he wanted to be there. Second, uh, they both knew their Bible, as we've already looked at in the Song of Mary, the Magnificat. They knew that the Messiah needed to be born in that promised city of Bethlehem. And so uh, I'm sure that they knew that without any imagination. Also, if Joseph had gone on his own, Imagine the, crowd, the, 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 uh, the, the talk in Nazareth, still not getting their head and arms around the idea that, that this was the promised child, that it was a virgin conception, and that she was going to have the baby there uh, without Joseph. Uh, and so that's reasonable to understand that he would not have left her behind. As hard as that would have been for a gal that pregnant and almost full term, to make the long trek. And they didn't go down to Harrisburg Airport and in comfort get on a U.S. Air and off, and there we are, and Mom, we made it, we're safe. Uh-uh. It was walking. It was treacherous. It may have been on a donkey. Sometimes you'll see that portrayed. 
And so they end up there in Bethlehem. You see, God was in the midst of keeping his word. The book, the whole book, and nothing but the book. And we saw last week that God always means what he says, and he says what he means. And God had said through the Christmas prophet Micah. Remember that? The Christmas prophet Micah and Micah 5.2. Can we show that on the screen? Let me remind you of that. I think I got it a little bit earlier than what I told you, but let's see what Micah says in Micah 5.2 about... Uh, uh, about the birth of our Lord. Can we do that, Jay, or is it we can There it is. Look what Micah wrote hundreds of years before this. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. See, there was another one, but he pinpoints it. Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one, notice this, who will be ruler over Israel. And now it's qualified whose origins are from old, from ancient times, from everlasting to everlasting. That is the description of God, that this one would be born in Bethlehem. Remember when, when Herod, uh, in his rage, heard that there was a king born, and he went to the wise men and, he, uh, and to his counselors and, and so on, said, well, where is this one who would be born? And they, they knew. They quoted Micah 5 too. Well, he would be born in Bethlehem. And that maniac of a man uh, that Herod, remember Herod the Great, went and killed uh, all the, the babies, uh, boys that were two years and, and under to eliminate. They knew that. They knew where he was going to be born. And so God was in the midst of keeping his word about where his son would be born. And he was using a pagan, godless, unwitting uh, emperor to bring this about. Well, eight, now, uh, now the attention narrows to the family of this child, to Joseph and to Mary. Luke tells us that both Joseph and, and Mary, his betrothed, and that's the word in, in, in the Greek, it's a word that means betrothed. We think of it as engaged. One of the translations translates it as wife. She was his wife. But Luke is careful to, to note here, and using a word different than the word that's commonly used for wife, he uses the word betrothed. They were married, but remember in that culture, as we saw a few weeks ago, there were several parts to that betrothal. And uh, he is indicating this, using this word, that they have not had marital relationship yet. You see, she was a virgin yet. And uh, she would give birth as a virgin. And Luke is highlighting it by his usage uh, that's in the technical word that uh, Joseph and Mary, his betrothed. You see, even in our culture, uh, it, uh, there, there are at least two steps required uh, for a marriage. You know that? There are two. And most of us uh, are, are often will think of the first, of course. There's the public acceptance of a spouse. Do you ever notice we don't do marriage in a closet with two people? No. Our government has said, listen, and recognizing it's the cornerstone of, of, a, of any country is the family, and marriage the corner of the fa cornerstone of a family. You go down and you apply for a license at the courthouse. It's registered. And then there's a ceremony plan. That's the public acceptance, whether, whether you have just the best man or a a maid of honor and a, and a minister or a justice of the peace. It's a public affair. It's a public event. 
you see. And, uh, and then the celebration with the Bormans, we celebrated all that last week and enjoyed that. And, and, and John, you and Taylor, not too long ago, and we're going to hey, continue the celebration today. It's a, it's a public event. It's a celebration. And, and I'll remind you of, of, of Jesus being at the wedding feast of Canaan there. I had the privilege a number of years ago to be there on a study group, and there was a couple that reset their vows, and he gave her a diamond ring right there at the traditional site in Canaan, which is in the Galilee area, not far from the Sea of Galilee, and went through the whole wedding thing, and they reset their vows. It was beautiful. And so a wedding in our day, in our culture, even in the United States, there's the public acceptance. You got to stand up there and say, I will and I do before God, before family and friends and witnesses. But it's more than that, you see, because a wedding, if it doesn't go any further than that, can be annulled by the courts. There must be the marital relationship where two physically become one, you see. So it takes those two things. Even in our own culture, we recognize that. And here in this culture, they're married, but Luke Luke is still saying, look, they're betrothed, Meaning what? She's still a virgin, and Mary would have children later. The Bible tells us that there were a number of children that naturally came from Mary and Joseph. Jude, in your Bible, was written by one of Jesus's, we say, half-brother, because his, he had no human father. But the natural offspring of Mary and Joseph later would produce a number of uh, sons and daughters, and James is another one. Your Bible has the book of James. That's a natural brother or more to half-brother of Jesus and, and so on. So I say all that to say Luke is noting that with the physician's technicality. Now, wait a minute. Uh, she, she's still a virgin, though there, she's married and in that culture, and, and, and there they go to be registered. She has still kept herself, and they've not had union as uh, until after the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's amazing. The closer you and I look at the Word of God, the more amazed you and I are. Well, Luke, uh, number two, uses David's name twice. It's not because he's stuttering, but he, but he uses it for emphasis' sake. He wants us to clearly see in this section the credentials of Jesus. And he says, David, David, David means the beloved one, loved of God, the city of David, of the city of David and of the line or lineage of David. He's saying, he wants you, don't miss it, here's his point. This one that would be born there had the right credentials to be the seed of the woman, the promised one, the Christ, the Son of God. Don't miss it. It's like being on a Navy ship. Now hear this. Now hear this. Don't miss that. Especially if they're calling you for lunch. Amen? Don't miss that. He's saying, David, David, Dave, don't miss it. He's repeating it for emphasis' sake. This one was the promised one of 2 Samuel 7. We saw that last week in David's coming. He was the promised son who would rule on David's throne forever and ever. Well, I already said B, unlike Matthew, Dr. Luke does not tell the significance of being born in Bethlehem. He leaves it for us to ponder. What? It was the promised 
place that would give birth to God's Son. Luke, see, in establishing the credentials of Jesus, he's the son of David, he's born in the right place, and in order for the promise of salvation, he must be the direct descendant of David. And only this child, only this child of the nativity, the child that we celebrate and worship at Christmas, had the credentials required to be this one. You, you know, nobody born today could say, I'm the one. No one could. It was fulfilled in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ there in that little village of Bethlehem. You know, it's like pieces in a puzzle. Do you like putting puzzles together? Some of you like that. You like the real big ones, you know, 25 pieces. I can handle those. Keep your 5,000-piece puzzle to yourself, and I hope that you're missing about 10 pieces of it. No, I didn't say that. No, I didn't. That'd drive you crazy, right? There is no piece that fits here. None. I'm losing my mind. I've been working on this. You ever set it up on a table? We used to do that on vacation. Faithy's mom would do that. When she would visit, she'd set up downstairs in the rec room a puzzle, and in the course of her weeks there, bit by bit, she'd work on it and get it together. This reminds me of that. The pieces of the puzzle all mesh together beautifully, beautifully, as right well as we expect it would, wouldn't we? I mean, it's not pitching horseshoes. You do that at a picnic? Close does not count. You get a point if it's close, right? If it's a leaner, do you? A leaner, you get one, I think. I can't remember exactly. You get two, I think, if it's a a ringer. A leaner is one, and no, it's got to be right on. And what God says, it happens right according to his word. It's right on. And no other child could fulfill this, none. Not a single one. He has the credentials. It fits together beautifully, like a piece of a puzzle, and the puzzle in its entirety. It's marvelous. I remember when Greg came back from the Middle, Middle East, and he had to get his license, medical license, down in Georgia, and, and I, they wanted to hire him down there, but he couldn't, uh, he, he couldn't, uh, he couldn't practice medicine down there. It's state by state, as you know. And he said to me, Dad, you know, he said it's going to take four to five months. I said, four to five months? Yeah, he said, you know, the government, they have to go through and they have to, the state of Georgia, and they have to check all of my documents before they'll issue the credentials that will allow me to practice medicine down in Georgia. Well, Luke is showing us as the physician here something infinitely more important than a medical license. He's showing us the credentials of this one that would be born there in the city of Bethlehem. Amazing. It is amazing. It's wonderful. It is. Let me, while we're talking about Bethlehem, let me give you just some side thoughts on it, and we'll quickly move to the end here. Uh, MacArthur writes prolifically about this, and I thought it was quite interesting. Did you know for the first few centuries that the church did not even celebrate the birth of Jesus? Did you know that? That's hard for us to imagine in our grossly and pervertedly over-commercialized day of Christmas, right? I mean, it's nauseating. You go into the stores, which I try to avoid, um, but they already have it 
decorated in some places for Christmas. You know, the mistletoe, which, and everything else, the music and this, and I'm going, whoa, right? The early church did not celebrate uh, the birth of Christ, and they were closer to it and knew when it was for centuries. Origen, the, the church uh, a historian and theologian of those early days, he reasoned that people should be honored instead in the day of their martyrdom rather than in the day of their birth. How about that? And uh, he writes that the only birthdays mentioned in the Bible are those of Pharaoh in Genesis 40, verse 20, and and of Herod in Matthew 14, 6. And therefore, birthdays then, from the scriptural point of view, in his mind, were viewed as pagan customs. Ron, I'm, that's not for you today. I know it's your birthday, and we celebrate that gift of life with you. But in that day, it was considered uh, pagan to do that. And so by the second uh, century, the actual date of Jesus' birth had been forgotten. Can you imagine that? We, in our exact Western scientific way of thinking, thought we would have circled that date and put little stars around it. So we'd never forget, right? They, the actual date was lost and, and had been forgotten. And MacArthur writes as evidenced by the numerous dates that were later proposed for the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. You want to know what some of those dates were? Here's just a few of them. January 2nd, January 6th, March 21, March 25, April 18th, April 19th. You see, they had lost it. December 25th was settled on by the Western Church. We don't know exactly when. We're guessing it was probably near 300 uh, A.D., but... uh, uh, that uh, we're not even sure about as well. But the reality is, is that he was really born. He was really born of the right family, in the right place, and at the right time. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, made of a woman. Well, the third setting. Let's narrow it down. we got the wide angle Rome, narrowing it down to Bethlehem. Now we're in Bethlehem, and we're in a little stable. Let's look at these well-known verses in verses 6 and 7. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. It says firstborn there because there would be others that she would give birth to. And she wrapped him in claws. That was strips. of strips. They would tear strips and wrap the baby tightly to straighten the limbs and for warmth. And placed him in a manger. Now, you see the word manger there? That's, that word is there. It's the only place in the Bible that, that uh, we draw the inference from that he was born in a stable, a cave, if it was used for animals or not. It's only because of that word that uh, she placed him in a manger, which is a feeding trough for livestock, usually made of stone, sometimes wood. Sometimes it was carved out of the ground. And so they wrapped that little bundle of joy, their promised son, and laid him in an animal feeding trough there in the stable. And so a stable. And so we say that everything we know about Jesus' birth points to obscurity, indignity, to pain, 
and to rejection. I'm telling you there was no welcome there for God's Son, whose stable was his first earthly throne room. No welcome. No welcome. None. You know, our president travels all around the world, and he represents us when he goes. Did you know that? The, the airplanes fly in and all the entourage, hundreds of people travel, the press corps and all the equipment and all the armor cars and all the food and all that. They take all that with them. I mean, it's hundreds and hundreds. The president's going to go to China, I think, this month. Yeah, I've read that. Uh, he just doesn't go down to uh, uh, Southwest Air and, you know, here's my, do I get miles, you know. Uh-uh. It's an enormous event. And you know what? When, when he arrives there with his entourage, because he represents our country, he will receive a great welcome as right well. Now, if he showed up in Beijing and nobody showed up, I got news for you. That would be a tremendous slam against the United States of America. He represents us. I don't care what your political affiliation is. I really don't care. He's the elected official. He's God's servant. We need to pray for him and all those. He represents the United States. And they will have flags of flying, and there'll be trumpets sounding, and they'll give him a welcome, and we're glad for that, as right well as should. Now, what do you think was really uh, the creator of the universe worthy of? I mean, God, verily God, almighty God, sovereign God. What kind of a welcome must he have been worthy of and never received? The indignity of it is infinitely horrendous. Even the Roman Empire and their great system of roads and communication, they were ignorant of the vicinity of God who was in their midst and in their empire. And nobody, nobody even noticed. That's why I say everything we know about our Lord's birth points to obscurity, indignity, pain, rejection. There was no welcome. Well, why was Jesus born like this, you ask? Why was his crude and unwelcome birth? What does it tell us about this thing called our salvation? Well, at least three things. Dr. Reich, uh, Reichen helps us with this, uh, and I thought they were beautiful. First, his birth shows us the depravity of our sin. He came and nobody noticed. You know what? We are so self-absorbed, self-centered. My own business, my own schedule, my own priorities, my own list. And, and they were not unlike us. They were the same. They had their own agendas, their own religion, their own worship, their own activities. They went to school. They kicked the ball. They did everything. Completely shows us the depravity of our sin. And we're just like him. They were ignorant of the vicinity of God. Well, second, it shows us, birth shows us the true humanity of our Savior. He was truly human. He was human in every way, just like us. But more, he's the God-man, but he was all man. He received all his humanity from Mary. 
God did not save us from afar, I remind you, but he came close. He couldn't have come any closer. He came close and became a man. And his birth emphasizes this. Childbirth. Is there anything uh, that emphasizes humanity more than that? I mean, some of you have been there for that. I mean, no. We've all been there at least once for that. Some of you have witnessed that. I mean, it is a very earthy event. The sounds, the smell, the slimy, you know, let me get a hold of him, you know. I mean, Joseph had to hold that baby. I mean, it was earthly, of the earth, earthly. And it shouts the humanity of Jesus. Not only it shows a depth of, we could care less. I got my own things, the depravity of our sin and the depth of it. But it shows the humanity, the utter humanity of Jesus, that he was a man. Amazing, amazing he was. Wonderful. And more than that, third, it shows us his unbelievable humility in our salvation. Humility. The incarnation was an act of infinite, bottomless humility. I mean, he's God. Remember that. And he humbled himself and became a man. The humility of this birth, and I remind you, would become the whole pattern of his life. Not now. He's glorified. He reigns as king. But in his earthly life and ministry, there was a lowliness and a humility about him that was absolutely beautiful. It was a pattern of his life, and it should be for us as well. I remind you of Philippians chapter 2, the great kenosis. And let's just read a couple of those verses. We should have that on the screen up here, where Paul reminds us of the humility uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ in Philippians 2. Paul says to the Philippian believers and to us that our mind or our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. Look at the words. They're very unusual words. He he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Well, praise the Lord. Well, lessons for our life quickly and we'll be done. Number one, Jesus was not welcomed. He was not welcomed there in Bethlehem. The inn was full. It was a public house. It uh, was often very immodest, a large open room where people would get in out from the uh, open cold night air. It was full. Maybe they were all there to be taxed and to be shaken down for gold. But by the time they got there, no room. And there was a manger. And so we believe they were in a cave that was often associated, only livestock and animals around. He was not welcomed by the mayor of Bethlehem or by the leaders of Judea or by the Roman Empire. He was not welcomed. 
But here's the question. Have you welcomed Him? Have you welcomed Him into your heart and into your life? Have you received Him as your Lord and as your Savior? You must. There was no room in Bethlehem, but you must make room in your heart for Him. That is the Christmas story. That's the whole purpose for the birth of Jesus Christ. Oh, you can do that today. I'm reminded of that. In a room like this, I never know if all of you are saved, if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior from sin. Don't need to pray with a pastor to do that, though I'm always glad to do that. Simply in the quietness of your heart, Lord Jesus, I receive you as my Lord and as my Savior. Thank you for dying for me. That is all important. That is the gospel. If you don't hear anything else, hear that. And today, make room in your heart for the Lord Jesus Christ, to be your Lord and your Savior. Number two, never forget. Never forget that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wheresoever he wills. The heart of the king. They say, well, we, we don't have a king in America. Well, the point here is any authority structure that you are under and that I am under, and we are all under authority, we are. It may be an employer, it may be a father, it may be a mother, it may be a husband, it may be a, it may be a government official. Uh, it is God uh, that turns the heart and the thinking of such people, wittingly or unwittingly, whether they're saved or not. Take uh, encouragement. Never forget that. We see it here in Caesar Augustus, God turning the screws of his heart and bringing about his great purpose to the salvation of a people, a privileged people, you if you know Christ. Number three, stand amazed at the love of God. I say stand amazed. Some would say, well, isn't it akin that that if a man could become like a little ant on the ground, it would be like? No, I say that the gap is infinitely greater than that. For God in love to become Man, it was the love of God that, that did it. God so loved the world that he gave. The love of God who goes to such depth to save you from your sin. Praise him. Sing a song to him today. May it be a melodious song of praise every day. Number four, Jesus' humility should cause us not to insist on having our own way. You can't walk away from this without saying this. You know, we are being made like Christ. Christ didn't have his own way. He wasn't born in the palace. He wasn't uh, received with great fanfare. And it's the whole pattern of his life and ministry. And what it means to us, at the very least, is that we ought never go around and say, I want my way on this. I deserve more. I deserve better. You never heard that from the lips of the Lord Jesus. And so it shouldn't be from your lips or mine. It shouldn't. And number five and last, be encouraged. There are no accidents in history. None. I had a friend said to me one day, he said, I shouldn't be here. I said, what do you mean? He said, I was an accident. An accident? Yeah, my mom said I shouldn't have never been born. And I said, I got news for you. There are no accidents with God. And you're really here. No accidents. No accidents in history. History is his story. Good way to remember that. It's his story. 
God is sovereign. Well, no taxation without representation. Yeah, we're Americans. Caesar said, no, wait a minute. No taxation without registration. Go to your ancestral towns. Take your wallets and your checkbook. Shake them down. I need some gold. Take heart. God in all of that was up to something. He was bringing about the birth of the greatest one who would ever be born, even the Lord Jesus. Wow. Wow. 